Chapter 2. The Floating City Callista Torbion successfully evaded the security guard in all three of his rounds. The echoing clunk of the deadbolt securing the university library's heavy double doors signaled her glorious newfound solitude. She celebrated at an appropriate volume. While most students were packing up for the term and heading home to await notice of their grades, she decided to prolong her first year away from home for as long as possible. Peering from behind one of the dozens of dusty bookshelves, she confirmed the guard's exit. She liked old Samuel, even though he had discovered most of her hiding places, forcing her to enact more and more elaborate plans for staying after hours. Clutching a book to her chest, she lightly skipped barefoot down the hardwood aisle, long red hair flowing behind her. Freedom. She loved the spacious vaulted ceilings and stained glass windows that spilled in various colors of light along the path to her destination. In the back corner of one of the reading areas, a particularly appealing golden swath of light bathed her favorite overstuffed armchair. She greeted the old friend, then pivoted and fell backwards over the upholstered arm into the well-worn seat. Dust plumed and danced about lazily in the rays as her hair draped over the armrest, nearly gracing the floor. She closed her eyes tightly, fighting a headache. It clawed at the back of her mind, demanding her attention, but she wouldn't let it spoil this perfect moment like it had so many others. Slowing her breathing, she whispered to herself a countdown backward from five, and imagined securing heavy locks and chains on a metal door keeping the monster at bay. Three, two... One. Peace. Satisfied with the result, she cracked open the book, savoring the scent of the old paper. She adored all things antique, or at least anything that had survived the move to the skies. Books containing stories of the land before the great overload, stories of adventure, dashing knights on quests and fair maidens locked up in towers. She related to the plights of the latter far more than she liked to admit. The whole of Verdant was a prison as far as she was concerned. The Flying City was her inescapable island, and her only consolation was having access to a library whose books she hadn't already read a dozen times. She wasn't ready for that window of opportunity to shut. The stories in those dusty tomes did little to slake her thirst to see the world. All of it. Not just above the clouds, but the forgotten realms, the places nobody spoke of anymore for a simple lack of remembrance or reverence. The longing to explore had embedded itself during her first and only airship ride when she was five years old. Her family had just moved to Verdant under doctor's orders, and she spent the next 14 years cooped up in a basement due to her headaches. Traveling beyond that basement, even if it was just a five-minute skiff ride away from the university, had been a dream come true. Her parents' one condition was that she must remain indoors as much as possible, which Callie found acceptable given the size of the library. The university was her favorite part of Verdant, since it was the city's only structure directly transplanted from before the launch of the Atmo project. She loved wandering its halls, pretending she lived with everyone else on the ground by walking where they walked. She softly hummed one of her mother's little melodies as she flipped through the pages, finding her secret bookmark. One chapter remained unread, and as much as she pleaded with the librarian, it was strictly against university policy to let a book stay loaned out over break. Granted, it was a history book and part of an incomplete anthology, but a girl had to have principles, and completing a book once begun fell well within those bounds. Plus, she needed as much research as she could get on the origin of all energy for the book she had begun writing. Her eyes soaked up the descriptions of multi-wheeled vehicles called trains. She had difficulty understanding why they gave way to four-wheeled vehicles called cars, but understood that they mostly resembled the ground-bound skiffs she saw zipping around the streets of Verdant. The jangle of heavy keys at the entrance sent her heart racing. Barely a page completed and her time was up already. It wasn't fair. She had half a mind to try to sneak the book out, but she knew theft would lead to sleepless nights and an eventual tear-filled confession to her father. She prided herself on being a storyteller, but drew the line of flat-out lying. Speed read.
There was a creak of the heavy door and what sounded like two sets of boots clattering louder as they approached. She ran her finger along the page, giving it more a glance than a thorough read. If she was caught, she was caught. But that only meant she'd need to read more quickly. Callie, a familiar voice bellowed. Daddy. She tucked in her legs tight, hoping the wingback would sufficiently hide her. I locked her in here. She should be around somewhere, Samuel said, erasing any pride Callie had in her scepterfuge abilities. Another two pages down, five to go. The footfalls grew louder as her pulse raced. The invention of typewriters, the predecessor to modern airships, the first discovery of relative time, the clockwork war, and the last two pages were torn out. It seemed she couldn't find a single book that contained information on the great overload. Her frustration only fed the monster that wouldn't stop charging the door the way it did in her nightmares. The wingback chair tipped backwards. Callie let out a yelp, tumbling onto a rug in a most unladylike fashion and rolling into the legs of her father. Looking up through a mess of red hair, she saw her father's offered hand. Time's up. Callie sheepishly accepted, and he hauled her small frame up with little effort the way he always had. Samuel waited for her to relinquish the contraband. She gave the elderly guard her most pitiful look, but he just sighed and shook his head. He didn't understand he was taking the last vestige of fresh material she would see in the next three months. I'm sorry, Mr. Samuel, she said, placing the book in his aged hands. At least you don't get drunk and fall off the clock tower, he said. I'll take play and hide and go seek any day. The pounding in Callie's head suddenly intensified, and the room spun wildly. She began to sway. Callie? Mr. Torbion asked. He knew the dizzy look on her face and reached out his strong arms for her in a practiced motion. The mental door holding back the pain finally gave way as the room disappeared into blackness. Verdant wasn't particularly far from Framer's Valley, but it was the longest flight Rass had ever endured. Underneath the cloud level, Rass discovered a far less dangerous path that didn't involve the main canyon. He took a tunnel offering the promise of daylight out of Framer's, and he desperately wished he had known of the path earlier. The copper fox was hobbled despite his best efforts to get it back up and running. It wasn't until Rass had set his course above the clouds that the chill of the wind announced the new tears in his clothes. His threadbare outfit would need another set of patches, but such details felt frivolous. Hours later, Rass caught a glimpse of the floating city of Verdant glittering on the horizon. The sun peeked through its modest skyline, setting the clouds ablaze in a brilliant orange. It already looked as though the circular, ten-mile-wide city hung a little lower in the sky, but Rass hoped it was just his mind playing games with him. Maybe Verdant didn't rely on this particular convergence, he thought. Maybe if I bring in the load in front of the city council, they'd know how to turn it back into a convergence. It was unlikely, considering the creation process of convergences, but he hoped ignorance of some special process might be his salvation. The city wouldn't fall immediately as long as the emergency energy balloons beneath the city weren't depleted, but he didn't know how long the city's reserves would last. Rass queued up the Copper Fox behind several wind merchant vessels waiting to have their hauls appraised at the Collective's energy refining station. Even though the Collective was the closest thing to a universal government in Natmo, the Wind Merchant Guild had no jurisdiction over any of the 14 remaining sovereign cities, but it was illegal to enter Verdant's borders with a full hull of energy, lest the city suffer a repeat of the Great Overload. He hated selling to the Collective after every haul. Mr. Planks, the frail collections officer, took full advantage of being the sole energy buyer in the bowl after the city of Marin fell eleven years back in a sky pirate attack. Planks and his assistants had never come aboard the Copper Fox when Rass said the hold was empty, but the man had a nose for energy. Knack sensitivities manifested themselves differently to different people. Some saw energy in green swirls, others tasted or smelled something out of place. From the way he would scrunch his nose upon each inspection, Rass guessed the latter. Idling forward and stopping again, Rass came close enough to hear bits of Mr. Plank's routine sales pitch to the pilot in front of him. Have you considered swapping your scoops to Helios engines? 
The price of fuel is well worth the peace of mind knowing you'll never have to worry about dropping out of the sky, Rass recited, finishing the sentence in an affected nasal tone, then covered his mouth when he realized planks could probably hear him. The whole system was rigged. Scoop engines allowed an airship to fly free, powered by the energy it encountered in the wind. The idea of buying the ability to fly from anyone was preposterous, until the Collective built the monstrosity called the Winnower to act as a filter over the origin of all energy. After all, with no way to test energy sensitivity that didn't render the test subject debilitated one way or another, neutering the origin was a necessity. The platforms outside each city ferried the raw energy captured by wind merchants to derailleur to keep up with fuel production. The collective's stated goal was to reduce the level of energy to a livable quantity so man could return to the ground without fear of exploding, which was all well and good until the process began choking the cities that ran off scoop engines. But luckily for Atmo, the collective just so happened to build a new type of engine designed to utilize the fuel created by the winnower after it processed the raw energy, rendering it harmless. It was obvious to most that the collective attempted to make the new system more palatable by naming the new engines after the man who created the Atmo project, Foster Helios Sr. The whole Helios engine propaganda campaign played off the fears of parents by painting a picture of children as precious little time bombs. Two cities rose up against the collective, and both nationalities were branded as sky pirates and hunted down on sight by the fleet still equipped with the weapons from the Clockwork War. Verdant was one of the final holdouts about swapping its engines from Scoops to Helios, but whether the city's stance was a matter of principles or finances, Rast didn't know. The Copper Fox took its turn in front of Mr. Planks, who didn't bother to look up. Have you considered swapping your ship out for an entirely new one? The gaunt, middle-aged man chuckled sharply, then sniffled and rubbed his nose. What'd you collect? Nothing I can sell, Rast said. Mr. Planks sneezed. Bless you, Rast said in too polite of a tone. Collection system got gummed up after I hit a cliff in framers. Planks surveyed the copper fox. Just one? Come on, Planks. I don't have anything for you. Just mark it zero. Planks exaggeratedly swooped the circle on his clipboard. It's quite charitable of you, continually saving the rest of the knack list from humiliation. Rass smiled in mock amusement, half wishing he could tell Planks to take a look in his hold and see exactly where he belonged on the list. But if the collective took his supply, they wouldn't give him anything for it besides grief. Thanks. Guess we can't always have a veer at the top, Plank said. Are we done? We were when I saw you fly up. He scrunched his nose, then reached up to feel a small amount of blood before wiping the rust away with the back of his hand. Rass said his goodbye by jamming his throttle forward. The ship lurched, backfired, and then puttered toward Verdant, lacking the dramatic effect Rass intended. He tried to ignore the hearty laughter coming from the crew of the collection station. Thanks to the beating the Copper Fox had taken back in framers, the usual ten-minute trip to the docks lasted an hour, giving Rass a long, hard look at his home city. He always thought Verdant looked like a gently rotating ship's wheel, with docks for airships at the edges, followed by traders, merchants, and stores, with main avenues along the eight spokes. Other business and offices made up the next layer in, then homes, and at the very center stood Verdant's University, which tripled as the Capitol building and a park for children. With everyone living more or less on the edge of Verdant Park, families spent time together and had enough isolation from the fringe trades if they desired, although there was less and less business as of late. Travel to the city was notoriously difficult because of the mountain passes, and with a dwindling energy supply, fewer merchants included Verdant in their trade routes. In the overall geography of Atmo, Verdant was its most southwestern settlement. The mountains comprising the borders of the bowl constituted a natural energy-trapping structure since the origin wasn't too far away from the main mountain pass. Before Marin sank, the bowl thrived with trade between the two cities. Imagining Verdant laying desolate and empty beneath the clouds like Marin broke Rass's heart. With the influx of Maronian transplants living in Verdant, the city had become cramped. 
Brass wondered how crowded the cities outside of the bowl were, and if they would even be capable of taking on the refugees of Verdant. With seven of the 21 cities downed and no real opportunity for expansion, where would everyone go? Rass had heard of some smaller settlements atop mountain ranges or townships comprised of bolted-together airships, but it was no way to live. The dull roar of Verdant's engines grew as the Copper Fox approached the crowded old wooden docks. Rass's eyes easily found the empty slip designated for the Veer family. An older man creaked back and forth in a decrepit rocking chair, waiting. Old Harley Hollister. He stood as Rass brought up a thick rope to moor the ship. Don't you have other ships to patrol? Rass asked the man in the faded Port Authority uniform, tossing the rope for Harley to tie to the dock. Your mama's worried about you, Harley said, taking the rope and effortlessly securing it. Looks like she had good cause, too. He paused, taking in the damage to the Copper Fox in the waning light. I hope it was worth it he said with true concern in his voice. Rass walked down the extending gangplank, not even looking up at the old man. Hey, hey, Harley intercepted Rass, halting the young man. What's the matter? You get into a fight? He'd almost forgotten about the bevy of scrapes and cuts he displayed. Cliffface one, Rass negative 20. Old Harley thought for a moment. Cliffface? You know better than to go out to framers, Harley said. That Tibbs boy came back bragging about pulling a fiver from there. I didn't get a fiver, Rass said, fixated on his boots. Hey, could you do me a favor and make sure nobody messes with the fox? I know she looks like a junker. Old Harley stood at attention. On old Harley's honor, at least until I get off duty tonight, he smiled. You want the weather report for tomorrow? Rass shook his head and walked past his friend, patting him on the shoulder. Not going out tomorrow. He opted not to take one of the public transit skiffs back to his home. What should I tell Mom? Hey, sorry I'm late. I was just off dooming our livelihood. Walking along a mostly depopulated main avenue, a street vendor tried to interest him in some sort of bird on a rotisserie. Rass wordlessly waved him off. I don't get dinner tonight, he thought. His mind began playing the perverse game of wondering if each person he passed would be able to leave Verdant. The city wouldn't fall immediately, giving those with ships a chance to escape. He walked past a tavern, one of the few popular businesses left, and stared through the large window into the energy lamp-lit room. Tibbs sat at the bar, surrounded by a handful of wind merchants. He made wide gestures, sloshing his drink back and forth before he spotted Rass. Tibbs motioned for Rass to come inside until the other wind merchants shot him a hard look. Everyone knew a lack was bad luck. Just wait till you have a real reason to hate me. He continued down the avenue as night folded in around him, and the streetlights slowly glowed to life as one. The artificial light guided Rass to the residential zone lined with various colored cottages on either side of the street, all identical in structure. After all, one couldn't exactly pluck building materials from the skies. He came to the light blue exterior of the Veer home. His mother had inadvertently selected the color after mistakenly ordered a surplus of paint for Rass's nursery, and couldn't persuade the merchant to give her a refund. Quietly working the key into the lock, he opened the door, which sounded a piercing creak he never did remember to remedy. The house remained dark as he waited for his mother to flick on the lamp next to her chair as she did so often during Rass's teenage years. The sound of slow, heavy breathing came from the couch in the middle of the living room. Emma Veer slept soundly. Her small frame huddled in a ball, and her head of long, dark chestnut hair lay on a pillow. The peaceful expression on her face erased the usual lines of worry, making it difficult to guess she had celebrated her 40th birthday just a month prior. The slight chill in the house prompted Rast to retrieve a blanket from the hallway closet and carefully drape it over his mother. She stirred. Hmm. Eli? I'm sorry, Mom. It's just me, he whispered. She pulled the blanket tight and once again left the waking world. Rass ascended the stairs, knowing this would probably be the last night in his bed for a long while. In the morning, he would hand himself over to Verdon's city council. It seemed like Rass spent most of his night awake, feeling the bruises and aches settle in. 
The kaleidoscope of colors across his body was as impressive as it was painful. The smell of something baking in the kitchen told Rass's mother was up. After a dew bath and gingerly scrub down, he dressed in a loose-fitting white work shirt and a crumpled pair of tan pants adorned with only a few patches. He walked down the stairs to find his mother setting a fresh batch of biscuits to cool on the stove. In the daylight, the house looked more sparse than he remembered. It was always a sad game trying to guess which things had last disappeared from the house, but Emma always said if he didn't notice its absence, it was probably something they didn't need. I hope biscuits are all right again, she said, pulling a tray from the oven. What time did you get home last night? She paused, finally getting a good look at her son, who stood a good eight inches taller than she. Night. About midnight, Rass sat down at the kitchen table, letting his hair hang in front of his face to hide a few of the more grievous cuts near his left temple. He winced as Emma pulled the hair back. Who did this to you? She asked. I hit some turbulence while I was in the engine room, he said, pursing his lips. Some? She cocked an eyebrow. You all right? She asked, taking a seat on the stool across the table from him. Rass appreciated that she asked about him before the copper fox. He didn't know if he should tell her anything yet, but a no or even a hesitation would earn him an interrogation. I banged up the fox and didn't collect anything I could sell, he said. How banged up are we talking? Nothing I can't fix eventually. The, the tank is fine. Emma's eyes glassed over the way they usually did when she calculated what she would need to sell to pay off the bills when Rass didn't profit from his last run. Oh, I have something for you. Emma gave her best distracted smile and went to the refrigerator to extract a cake. She set it on the table in front of her son for him to read, Welcome Home Callista, in big blue frosted letters. Mom, Callie's dorm room isn't that far from our house. Well, she's home for the summer and might like to see an old friend, she said innocently. She never made any pretense of her preference that her son marry the girl next door. She's not going to think I made her a cake. Rass looked at the frosted words again. Did you try to imitate my handwriting? She had. Within ten minutes, Rass bandaged himself, dressed in his one set of patchless clothing, and found himself holding a cake on the front porch of the Torbion home. The family had selected the house for its basement due to Callie's special allergies. They had moved in when Rass was six years old, and the little red-haired girl with brilliant blue eyes and the fairest skin he had ever seen had captivated him from day one. If he had to show himself before the council and be locked up for his crime, he was all right with Callie being the last person he saw. Rass knocked on the door to no avail. He felt stupid and overdressed, and Callie would instantly know he had been set up. He was about to knock a second time, but a very faint chick-chick-a-chink stopped him. Callie was home. The sound carried from the side of the house, so Rass walked over to the ankle-level basement window. He set the kick down in front of it and rapped on the window four times. Tap, tap, tap. Pause. Tap. Their code. He stepped to the side so she couldn't see him. The typewriter stopped. A latch clicked open and the window swung out. Rass watched the porcelain hand reach out and pause. Then another hand swiped a finger full of frosting from the side of the cake. Now who could have left me a cake? A familiar, playful voice wondered aloud. I certainly hope it's not poisonous. But I suppose there are far worse ways to leave this world. The hand with the icing on it withdrew. A moment later, the one holding up the window did likewise. The window relatched. The cake remained. Rass sighed, smiled, and rapped once again on the window. This time he stood next to the cake. Still no response. He went to his hands and knees to peer through the dirty window and saw a sparsely furnished basement with a pre-Atmo iron typewriter with black circular keys on a table in the place of honor in the center of the room. But no girl. Erasmus, Vera, you no good peeping Tom. Kelly did the best impression of her father that a 19-year-old girl could muster. The effect was comical, but still startled Rass, whose posterior stuck in the air as he froze, peering through the window. 
His face flushed as he stood and saw the little girl he had looked forward to seeing every day of his life. She had grown up since leaving for university. Now she stood with impeccable posture that he guessed her classmates mistook for snobbery, but Rast knew she feared becoming stoop-shouldered for all the hours she spent reading and typing. Her long, wavy red locks fell to the middle of her back, but for a few strands cascading over her shoulders, and she wore a loose, white sundress that both accentuated her fairness and proved she wasn't purely white as a sheet. "'I see you found the poison cake someone left for me,' she said, playing with an errant lock of hair. "'I, uh, chased him off,' had a hook hand, Rast said, crooking a finger and mimicking the fabled intruder." Looks like he got you a few times, she said, causing Rast to chuckle and then wince. Grab the cake. I want to show you something. She bounded back around the corner to the front of the house and Rast followed. So how was university? Took my last final yesterday. She held up crossed fingers. They entered the living room as Rast's eyes darted about. Don't worry, she said. Daddy's not home. It was no secret that Mr. Torbion had stopped liking Rass upon discovering that the boy had started sneaking over to spend time with his daughter. The relationship worsened when Callie began reciprocating and sneaking out to visit Rass. The clandestine meetings had ended when Callie passed out on her way to Rass's house one night and had been found the next morning in her nightgown on the Veer lawn. She was only twelve at the time, but the past seven years hadn't softened her father's opinion of Rass. How were the headaches? Rass asked, following her down into the basement. Never as bad as they were when I was little, but they're usually there. She arrived at her typewriter. Right now they're gone. Rass always wondered about her chronic headaches. She'd get them and collapse when she was out and about, but whenever he was with her, she seemed fine. He had once accused her of faking when they were young, and she had given him a two-month silent treatment. He never dared to voice the thought again. For whatever reason, she had fewer headaches in the basement, which she preferred to refer to as her library, since the walls were lined with shelves upon shelves of books. She slid into the well-worn desk chair and pulled the paper from her typewriter, placing it on a stack of pages. I was just finishing the first couple of chapters of a story I'd like you to read. She took the pages and straightened them with a few thumps on her desk. If you have time, I could really use a friend's honest opinion. A friend. That's all Rass had ever been. And her number one fan. Don't go easy on me. If it's bad, it's bad. And better I hear it from you. I'll be honest, I promise. Rass said. Where did you get the paper? I saved up, she said proudly. Well, I had to use the gifts I got for university too, but look at it. Isn't it so clean? Rass admired the fresh white paper and suddenly felt that no amount of hand washing would make him worthy to handle such a pure thing. There was no place on Verdon that made it, and most paper in Atmo was recycled to a mottled grayish blue hue. Mr. Torbion used to sneak her typoed scraps from the Capitol building until she began writing stories about the people in the front of the government documents. Where's it from? Durellier, she said. She smiled widely and offered him the stack, then withdrew it. We should probably bind these so pages don't go flying away when you're waiting on the next big haul, she said with no hint of sarcasm. What's it about? Rass asked. The white train, she said simply. You're finally riding it? Callie nodded. How many times can I dream about it before it's obvious I'm supposed to? Maybe writing it down will finally get it out of my head. Over and over, Rass heard the recounting of Callie's dream of being on a railed vehicle she called a train. She would describe in detail things she saw along the trip that baffled Rass. Her father chalked it up to reading too many pre-overload novels and an overactive imagination. How's the life of a wind merchant going, by the way? She asked. He preferred to keep the conversation centered on her, but she had the annoying habit of caring about what went on in his life. Let's just say I have plenty of time to read between collections. That a good or a bad thing, she asked. Rass hesitated. If ever there was someone Rass knew that appreciated a good story, it was Callie, and he'd rather tell her what happened than have her hear it from secondhand sources, or worse yet, her father. I fell beneath Atmo. Rass blurted. Callie's eyes shot wide open as she held her hands up to her mouth in shock, then dropped them and shot him a look of disbelief. Shut up. No, you didn't. Rass pointed to his head bandage. Does this look like a face that would lie about crashing? 
She eyed him warily, a smirk growing. All right, what did you see? Green, wavy stuff? Grass! You saw grass? She asked, excitingly pacing the room. Did you get to touch it? Laid in it. Really tall stuff. Soft, Rass said, enjoying how each minute description sent her over the moon with excitement. I knew it'd be soft, she exclaimed. Wait. Hold on, her eyes narrowed. How are you not dead? Great question. I was probably ten meters from a convergence. Erasmusphere, she said, enunciating every syllable. Now I know you're lying. Callie, if ever there was one thing I need you to trust me about, this is it. Ever? As in forever and ever, ever? Forever and ever, ever, he said, placing his hand to his heart. You realize, by law, I get to never trust you again if you're lying. Rass knew there was no such law, but not it anyway. It was as good as law to her. Her demeanor lightened. So they've been lying to us about the great overload. A grin spread wide. Callie loved a good conspiracy theory. I don't think so, Rass began. You're taking me with you, she said. Today. I can't. Why not? The room shuddered slightly and books fell from shelves. It felt like when something went wrong with the Copper Fox's engines, but on a massive scale. Suddenly, the entire room fell. The drop was only a couple of inches, but it was quick enough that both Rass and Callie braced themselves instinctively. What happened, Rass? Callie asked. It wasn't an accusatory tone, and he appreciated her for that. I sort of collected a convergence, Rass said, accidentally. The corners of her lips edged into a grin, which he knew didn't indicate amusement so much as that she didn't know how to respond to the news. She knew what it meant for Verdant. Can you put it back? Rass shook his head. Then let's find another one. I don't think there is another one of the bowl, Rass said. You just flew below Atmo for the first time. Who knows what else is out there? The prospect obviously excited her, and she had a point. A point that didn't involve Rass turning himself in and losing his ship. Upstairs, the front door opened. Heavy boots stomped around and Callie whispered, That's Daddy. We'll talk later. Rass was two steps ahead of her, moving toward the basement window with a practiced motion, unlatching it and opening it. Callie? A deep voice boomed from above and the footsteps aggressively grew closer. Yes, Daddy? She called back sweetly. Rass struggled to squeeze through the small window. This was a lot easier when I was eight, he wheezed. He felt a shove on his boots as Callie did her best to push him free, allowing him to grasp further along the ground, but gained little purchase. Rass heard steps clomping down the stairs when he felt one last push that gave him enough force to free himself. He rolled away from the window, safe. Rast watched Callie feign interest in something outside as he heard Mr. Torbion arrive downstairs. He panicked when he spotted the dirty, man-sized boot print on her otherwise spotless white sundress. He tried to motion to her to stay where she was, pointing to his own thigh. "'Callie, have you seen Erasmus?' Mr. Torbion asked. Callie turned to face him. "'I was just over at Emma's, and she said—' Rast sat up and scurried back toward his house, but ran straight into a man wearing a deputy's uniform, who shoved him into the arms of another deputy with handcuffs at the ready. "'Well, this doesn't look good.' A middle-aged man with pepper temples and a square jaw sauntered up to Rass as one of the deputies worked the cuffs. Sheriff Pauling. He turned his head to see Mr. Torbion as he joined the crowd. Good call. Poor boy was so surprised he didn't even put up a fight. What's this about? Rass asked, doing his best to feign ignorance. Emma Veer stomped out of the house shouting at Sheriff Pauling. Let him go. You know he wouldn't do something like that. Something like what? Rass asked. Erasmus Veer, you are under arrest for the attempted murder of Harley Hollister.